Hello and welcome back to the Old Code Podcast. I am your host and this is episode four. Today I'm excited to be talking to you about our topic today and today we're discussing Cartesian dualism. Now Cartesian dualism sounds like a fancy philosophical term but I really hope to be able to take you through course of history and development of the idea of dualism and really how it morphed into what we have today. So first of all, uh, the premise of dualism is that humans are composed of two parts. Uh, Plato and Aristotle formulated it as a body and a rational soul or a rational spirit. Christianity has long affirmed, the vast majority of Christianity, I should say, has long affirmed the concept of dualism, where we have a spiritual nature, and that is the means by which we relate to God, because God is spirit, and we must worship in spirit, but we also have a physical form, we have a local presence. The spirit is localized to the body, it is not divorceable from the body, the only time that it may be it may depart from the body is in death essentially if you have a body without a spirit it's a dead body if you have a spirit without a body it's not a human you need both so plato and aristotle functionally had this formulation of you have the physical you have the, the material uh, and then you have the rational soul which was a distinct form of material it was a whole debate for a long time exactly what the substance of the spirit was exactly. But <laughs> there's, a, I believe Aristotle basically formulated it as the spirit was the actualizing principle of the person. Uh, I don't want to get into that this episode, but maybe in another episode we'll get into it. So... Really, you have Plato and Aristotle, and again, this is in the Western tradition. You have Plato and Aristotle saying that there is man who is composed of a physical nature and a rational nature. Plato looks and goes, there must be a god who is immaterial. And from this god, we can discern that that which is spiritual, immaterial, in a sense, incorporeal, is superior to that which is fleshly, to that which is corporeal. So, there already starts to emerge in the Western tradition this view that the body is inferior to the spirit. Um, Christianity kind of picks that up and takes that, especially with asceticism. Uh, the monastic asceticism, where it is better to suffer bodily for the sake of the soul than to suffer of the soul uh, in favor of fleshly suit and fleshly gain. And there's a biblical principle to that, of course. But the problem was that there was, in the Christian tradition, and biblically speaking, when someone suffers bodily for the sake of the soul, we're not saying that the flesh is inferior to 
the spiritual nature. We're saying that the fleshly desires and even the fleshly sufferings we may endure in this lifetime are for the benefit for our salvation. And really, again, we can go back to a Christological argument. If the body was always inferior to the soul, why would Christ assume a human condition? Why would Christ assume a human nature? And really, that's where Gnosticism in the 3rd through 5th centuries, well, 2nd through, I'd say, 5th centuries, picks up and says, yes, so the spirit is superior, so Christ never needed a physical body. So we already see in the Western tradition this idea that the spirit is superior, the flesh is inferior. Uh, this kind of develops, and we ultimately do reach kind of equilibrium in Catholic, uh, uh, medieval Catholic ideology. T Thomas Aquinas, he says that the image of God is made up of both the physical human, human nature and the rational soul, borrowing Aristotle's language. Uh, the problem then comes up with the Enlightenment and Descartes, René Descartes, a French philosopher, if I'm remembering correctly, he was French. Anyway, uh, he postulates this system of doubting everything he possibly can. So Descartes starts off by doubting his ability to actually be able to verify anything for certain. And he boils this, he distills this doubt all the way back. So it turtles all the way back to the premise that the only thing he could possibly verify in the universe for certain is himself because he is a self-contemplating creature. And that is the statement of cogito ergo sum, which is, I think, therefore I am. Now, two ways that this has been misinterpreted in the past. Number one, it has been, been misinterpreted to state that only thinking things truly exist. Or he is saying that he thinks and therefore he exists. That's not what he's saying at all. Um, the second misinterpretation is in his people believing that him saying that rationality is the king of existence, it's the authoritative marker, that's not at all, again, what he's saying. To, to put it plainly again, what he's saying is, since he is a self-contemplating individual, the only thing that he can verify is himself. He cannot verify anything outside of himself because he cannot truly trust his own sense perceptions. He cannot trust his own rational faculties to acquire truth outside of himself. Now, he goes through a whole lot of mental gymnastics later on uh, in his systems of thought to justify his own belief in God. But he, again, this is mental gymnastics that he's having to jump through. So you already have 
you already have starting early on this idea of the superiority of the intellect slash rational soul to the body you now have Descartes effectively not only saying there's a superiority and an inferiority but you have this total divorce where he's saying the only thing I can know for certain is my own existence I can't know anything outside of myself and from that it kind of turtles all the way down into what we have today and I'd like to be able to explore that a little bit more uh, and what I mean by what we have today so the next step in the process is Kant uh, who tried to find a midway point between the pure rationalists and the pure empiricists uh, the pure rationalists were or idealists were able to say that you can't really know anything outside of yourself because you can't trust your sense perceptions or anything along those lines uh, the empiricists were saying we can discern the nature of reality from the world around us through our sense perceptions so there's two radical systems of thought and Kant tries to strike the middle ground by being able to say alright we can never know the thing in and of itself but we can know our perception of the thing we'll never be able to know the truth of the thing but we can know our perception of the thing and that goes back to what I was saying last time about perspective you can never know the true nature of a thing but you can know your perspective on a thing and Kant had a whole uh, grouping of categories that we effectively synthesize reality through so that we don't arrive at the reality of the thing we arrive at the noumena of the thing uh, if I'm remember if I'm remembering the terminology correctly so you have a phenomena of the thing which is the reality of it and the noumena of the thing which is the perceived nature of the thing uh, and again how does this apply how does this apply to today um, really this applies in its purest form into major categories throughout our culture today and those are artificial intelligence and social media so how does artificial intelligence factor into this so I'm trying to remember the ex-Google worker who claimed that Google's AI had become self-aware and should be considered a person. The gut impulse, especially in today's day and age, is to assume anything with a moderate amount of contemplative ability is granted personhood. And again, this kind of goes back to the abortion debate. Infants in utero do not have the same degree of consciousness that adult, fully grown adults possess. This is not to say, and, I, and that's, that's the primary argument. They're not as much people because they don't have as much rational capability. They're potential people. They haven't developed into full people yet. Well, again, 
I want to make it very clear, we reject this. We reject this. As much as we would reject somebody saying that somebody who has mental handicaps or somebody who has uh, severe da brain damage, that, that is a person. That is truly a person. We are not going to discount someone because they lack certain mental faculties that the average person possesses. The second, social media. Uh, or I'll, actually, I should go back to artificial intelligence really briefly. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that what we have in artificial intelligence is in no way, shape, or form true intelligence or true rationality. It has figured out how to synthesize certain parts of information, but no one was vying for chess bots in the 1970s or chess programs in the 1970s and 80s to be counted as people because it could reason to a particular chess move. But for some reason, humans are particularly programmed that as soon as something has the capacity for speech, we recognize it as a little bit more human. We think of it as a little bit more human because human nature is driven by the word. And I'll do another episode on that in the future. Don't worry. Number two, again, I want to, I'll finally go into social media. Social media is really the big point that I think drives home this image of Cartesian dualism, where we think we can have the run, we can run the full gamut of human experience purely through virtual interactions and virtual experiences. And I think the funny part is, is that we're actually discovering. First of all, humans weren't built to process social interaction the way we do on social media. Uh, I don't have the studies offhand, but I will try to locate them and include them in the description. But if I'm remembering correctly, the part of your brain which activates during actual social interaction does not actually light up in the same way when you are interacting with face-to-face -face or even voice-to-voice -voice interaction as it does purely through social interaction via social media. Comments, sections, status updates, tweets, and the like. It just does not register, and this is one of the reasons why people seem to have next to no filter, because they don't recognize they're actually interacting with a person. But social media also seems to hijack the ability or the particular area of our cognition that says, yeah, uh, I'm being attacked right now because my ideology is being attacked. So we believe truly that we can have all of the best of every world when it comes to social intera interaction when we are messaging back and forth we can contact anyone, anywhere, at any time. But this isn't necessarily denying an inherent part of our human nature, which is our physical, localized presence. When God created man, he made him, again, with that rational, spiritual nature, which I would argue, different podcast, I would argue that the mental rational faculties and the spiritual faculties are actually two distinct natures 
or uh, two distinct substances, but I digress. We assume that we can have the fullness of these interactions in the digital age. We assume that we can have these beautiful relationships and friendships. And I'm, I'm not going to discount the fact that beautiful friendships have been made via the internet. But a digital interaction will never be on par or equal to a genuine human interaction. This is part of the, one of the reasons why I want to encourage people to share this podcast through actual communication. And I know a text is different from a phone call, but it's still going to be better than, and hopefully it drives you to further conversation. Hopefully it drives you to grabbing coffee with a friend. Hopefully it drives you to discussing things and ideas over dinner. Because uh, circling back to social media, the truest example that we're going to see of this within the next 10 to 20 years is virtual reality. And it's going to be everything that tricks your brain into believing that you are perceiving genuine reality when you are sitting in a chair somewhere. Uh, because we assume, and this circles all the way back to that Cartesian dualism, we assume that stimulating the mind is the means by which we stimulate the person. And we are developing haptic jackets that allow us to feel certain things. We're allowing, or we're developing real-time 3D scanning so that people can have social interaction with other people, very lifelike social interaction with people across the country. These things are always going to fall short and these things are appealing to a very distinct view on human nature. And that very distinct view is that the body is secondary the mind is primary. And here's, here's my pushback for that. If you are trying to genuinely take care of something, and this goes back to biblical principles, if you are trying to take care of somebody and they come to you and say that they are hungry, you are not going to exhort them and encourage them first you are going to feed them, and then you are going to encourage them. You are going to encourage them by serving them. Use your words, always, of course, but the physical nature of people has been sorely overlooked over the past two to three decades. And we really, really need to start engaging people as people and not just as minds. A lot of Twitter interactions would be a whole lot less spicy if we interacted with people as people instead simple, instead of it simply as words on a page. We need to interact with our communities in a very real sense, in a very real way. We need to interact and engage with people 
not just mentally, but we must engage with them in person, physically. We need to make that happen. There's a profound difference between a comforting social interaction on, on Facebook or Instagram. It doesn't matter if we develop VR to such an extent where you can feel a constricting around your chest. There is never going to be a comparison between that simulation of reality and the actual reality of a hug. We need to seek to engage people as whole people. We feed the hearts, we feed the minds, and we feed the souls. We feed the people, we feed their bodies. We need to take care of people, and we need to tend to people, and we need to interact with people as though they were genuine people. And instead of playing into this idea that people are just their minds, I'll close with this horribly misplaced quote from C.S. Lewis. Nobody, nobody actually believes that C.S. Lewis said it, but everybody attributes it to him online. But it's the statement that you are not a body, you have a body, you are a soul. Um, and that is patently untrue. If you punch somebody in the arm, you don't say, hey, you punched my arm. You say, hey, you punched me. And I think that that's really one of the things that we need to carry into our conversations is when we attack somebody online, yes, you are attacking someone truly, but there's no stakes to it and you have made yourself into just another cog in this machine of outrage. So seek to engage with people and truly engage with them. Have coffee with your friends. Have dinner party, you know, have a dinner with family or friends. There's, uh, I think the, the 2020 pandemic really proved that a Zoom class is never going to be the same as learning from people in real life. There's always going to be a place and there's always going to be a time for these tools that which we've been given. But these tools, which only engage the mind, have been proven to be inferior. And we need to return to those tools which engage the whole person. This, mo this medium is even inferior. And that's why I want you to take these words and I want you to go and I want you to discuss it with people. I want you to find somebody that you think might be interested. And I want you to love on them and I want you to love on them well. So thank you for tuning in to this fourth episode of the Old Code Podcast. <laughs>